Hello, I'm Guy Walters and this is History Now, a history podcast from Mail Plus. Now, I expect as history fans, you'll all have heard of the Battle of Hastings and maybe, just maybe, you'll have heard of the battles of Bannockburn, I hope, Bosworth Field, Waterloo, the Battle of Britain. You know, you will have heard of these battles because they're all kind of epic in their way and they're defining and they're drummed into us at school, or at least they should be. And they're all kind of part of our island story, aren't they? That's if you are a British listener, but, you know, they're part of world history, some of these battles. And, of course, they help shape the nations that we are today. But today I want to talk about a battle that I guarantee, okay, I almost guarantee that you won't have heard of. And what's ironic about it is that nobody knows where it was fought. No one knows for sure where it was fought. But what we do know is that it took place 1,084 years ago in the year 937. Now, that is a long time ago. That's as far away as the year 2958 is from 2021, the year in which we're recording this. And what we also know, it was an incredibly bloody battle. And yet it also put England and the whole idea of Englishness on the map. So it was really important and it was really bloody. It was a really long time ago. No one's exactly sure where it was fought, although we may be getting almost definite about that. And it was called the Battle of Brunanburh. Okay, so what we need to do is we've got to unravel this battle. And to do that, I am joined all the way from South Carolina by the excellent Professor Michael Livingston. Now, he teaches military and cultural history of the Middle Ages at a place called the Citadel, the Military College of South Carolina. And he has written a definitive book about the battle called Never Greater Slaughter. And in it, he reveals with what looks like a really high degree of certainty where Brunnenberg was fought. And what's also astonishing is that as a result of his revelation, as a result of his theories as to where it was, he's also attracted some threats of modern day violence as well. But I'm not going to you know, come onto that quite yet, because what I want to do is I want to paint a picture of why this battle was fought, who fought it and so on. So, Michael, thank you so much for joining History Now. It's a pleasure to have you here. It's absolutely my pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Now then, I need the picture kind of setting a little bit. I need to know who fought it and why they fought it. So can you give us a kind of very simple, if it's possible, who, who are the warring parties and what are they fighting about? Yeah, I'd love to, love to. So, you know, I suspect most people listening to this podcast will have heard at some point or another that back in the ninth century, King Alfred the Great fought his way out of the swamps of Athelney to push back the Viking armies that almost ended England. This is King Alfred's cakes and all that, right? Yeah. This kind of notion of barely surviving, but England kind of kind of won here. Uh, and most people think that's like the end of the English-Viking conflict. Uh, you know, the English won, King Alfred the Great won, we're done. Skip to 1066, Hastings and all that. Well, not quite. <laughs> so <laughs> okay, we've this, just got this... like you know, best part of a couple of centuries that we, yeah, we need to look yeah, at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A few things happen in there, right? So, uh, you know, what really kind of happens here is that that Alfred makes a deal with the Vikings, and his deal is a treaty that draws a line across you know modern England. Um, basically, if you took a line from Chester to London, that diagonal. And he says, everything south of that, that belongs to us, to the English. English in quotes here, right? You know, as, as Absolutely, you know, I understand, yeah. And north of that, Vikings, you know, have a bloody good time. Enjoy. So this line is established. Well, 
succeeding decades of Alfred's heirs start pushing that line further and further north. And the Vikings aren't terribly happy about this. And, and they're not just pushing that line to the north, they're also pushing against the Welsh. They're pushing against anybody who's a rival political threat. And Got so it. by 937, Tom Brunenberg happens, those borders have been pushed all the way up through Yorkshire. But in 937, they come very nearly crashing back because under Alfred's grandson, Athelstan, all these rival kings who had been enemies of each other, these are people who were, who were murdering each other in their own lives. The Vikings in Ireland, the Britons of Strathclyde, so that's between kind of Dumbarton and Carlisle, the Scots of the North. These people were all enemies. They all get together and their one purpose, it would have been a marvelous meeting to be at, I'm sure. Let's stop killing each other for, you know, time out, time out. Let's not kill each other. <laughs> Let's go kill the English. Let's go do that. And now tell us a little bit about Athelstan. He was obviously a pretty impressive figure because he is, you know, at the helm of this enormously now increasingly powerful kingdom. Yeah, he was a very religious man. We know that about him. He makes a lot of donations to, to churches that seem very, they're politically astute, but also seem to be personally driven. He's a very strong military leader as well. He had done extremely well in pushing these borders back. In fact, just a few years before Brunnenberg in, in 934, he led an army, an English army, deep into Scotland. Something had happened along the border. We think the Scots might have kind of pushed across a little bit. And Athelstan says, you know, well, I'll push back and drives his army well north of Edinburgh. And in fact, he has a contingent navy paralleling his army. And they appear to go all the way to the top of Scotland, which is quite extraordinary and quite a show of power. So he pushes back and then some, right? So the whole idea... Yeah, is yeah, he pushes they, back yeah. and then some, yeah. Which is which yeah, is a, a parallels just... to the kind of, you know, the Middle East with Israel and the Arab nations. Just it's that kind of idea of, well, you've come in, well, we're going to go all the way and we're going to go all the way further now. So it's, it feels yeah, like... Yeah, that's, that's right, that's right. Very no-nonsense, hardcore attitude towards the enemy. It, it is, it is. And it's kind of no surprise if he's doing this right, to the Scots alone, and he's doing something similar to the Welsh, and he's doing something similar to these various enemies that they would all sort of feel like, we can't take him on alone, individually, but if we all got together, yeah, then maybe. <laughs> maybe. Yeah, then maybe we could take this guy out. So there's, there's an alliance against Athelstan and what we call, slightly in inverted commas, the English, because is that right to say in inverted commas at this stage? I think it's probably right, yeah. But those people who are identifying or being identified as with that side, yeah. Yeah, and Athelstan's kingdom is so stretching south from Yorkshire all the way down to the very extremities of southern England? Yeah, at this point, he's got just about what you would kind of think of as, as England. It's really, oh. once you get beyond Hadrian's Wall, things start to get a little bit iffy. But at least <laughs> in claim, he's like, I got all the rest of this stuff. And, and Wales, of course, is its own ball of fun. And Athelstan's a Christian, of course. He's a committed Christian. Yep, he certainly is. You know, he's saying the right things and carrying the right stuff and, and doing all that stuff. I won't speak to his salvation personally, you know what I mean? But uh, <laughs> No, I'm sure. Okay, he's, he's, he's checking the boxes, you know what I'm saying? And how about his enemies? And are, are they, do they define themselves you know, with any sort of form of religiosity at all? Yeah, uh, you know, the Scots are, and, and the Britons of Strathclyde, by all accounts, are Christian. The Vikings who are centered in Dublin, in Ireland, uh, not, very much not. Sure. They had, in the past, portions of these Vikings had converted. Some it stuck, some it didn't. 
it was kind of you know convenience of the of the moment uh, for many of them. But this particular group that Athelstan will face are are not. But these religious differences that they had, you know, again, they just sort of set everything aside and say, our biggest problem is the English. Right. <laughs> you know, we, we just got to get rid of them. Your enemy's enemy is my friend. So yeah. just before we get on to what happens on the day and what we can possibly know about what happens on the day, what's at stake here? If Athelstan loses, does that mean he then, you know, the, the, the alliance against him will, will claw into his territory? And if he wins, does he kind of take an important last big parcel of land? Is that kind of what's at stake here? It is in a sense. You know, one of the things that's interesting about, you know, being a military historian is that, you know, we have a sense of battles as these incredibly decisive moments, right? You know, sure. everything hung in the balance. And in historical practice, that's very often not the case. Part of that is because battles are so terrifically bloody, so horrifying, so bad, that even if you win, you're wounded, right? And, and you need to recover. So, you know, kind of the day after the battle might not have looked terribly different, but the lasting repercussions of what would have happened if this went the other way are absolutely night and day. The, right. the point of this alliance was, was to get rid of the English. I mean, this was not just we're mad about a city. This was an attempt to, to change the map entirely, to wipe the English off. And, and in fact, in the years immediately preceding this battle, a Welsh poet writes a poem calling for this very thing. He says, you know, we all need to set aside our differences and go kill the English. And he, he says, let's, let's, let's do that and let's wipe them to the shores of the sea. The idea is let's push them all the way off, get rid of them entirely, go back centuries, you know to before right. the Angles and Saxons came ashore. We're going to reset the map. As someone who's English, the idea of wiping English off the map, that, that sounds pretty existential and, and big enough stakes for me, frankly. It, and, yeah, <laughs> it is. It's, yeah. It is an existential threat. It really, truly sure. is. And, and what's amazing is that it all comes down, you know, in the end, to a single day. You know, that unlike most battles, that again, it kind of, you know, may not have mattered much, this is an attempt to eradicate an it's a single day. It's just mind-blowing that people haven't thought of this. And what do we know that happens on that day? Because it's not like we have, you know, extensive documentation reports. But what, can you give us a brief idea of what we think we know about what happens on the day? Yeah, so one of the great sources we have for this is a poem called The Battle of Brunnebur that exists in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. And it tells us a story of a battle... It's obviously biased. It's very propagandistic towards the English cause. But it tells us a story that fits with our expectations, that this is a kind of shield wall battle. So the armies kind of come together, form up lines, integrate shield walls. They've all interlocked their shields. And a shield wall is just as it sounds. Okay, you put all your shields together and you just stand there or you then attack or what? You put them all together and then you start kind of advancing towards each other. It's not the, uh, you know, Hollywood likes to do these... Uh, you know, everybody just screams and runs at each other. Right. Which is a really great way for chaos and killing your friends. <laughs> so instead, you would actually form these lines. Yeah, it's a shield wall, wall of shields. And, you know, people behind the wall are chucking things over the top. So, you know, javelins, shooting arrows, throwing rocks, anything they can do to sort of pummel the people behind the other shield wall, right? And those shield walls will eventually kind of come together 
and yeah, just begin walloping on one another up close. You know, you know what the other person ate for, for breakfast. You know? It's nasty. And what sort of weapons are they using against each other when they're at that close quarter? So swords, spears, uh, daggers, I mean, axes. This is, it's not like we have a uniform, right, that everybody's standardized. You're using yeah. what you had, and it's life or death, right? You know, you're using your teeth, if need be, um, to try and survive. And in those front lines, you know, any exposure of flesh under or around a shield is a target. I don't want to get too graphic for the listeners, no, but, but, but it's, no, it's no. rough. It's really rough. It's bloody and rough. And, and this is why your book's called Never Greater Slaughter. I mean, this is, this is the point. So do we have an idea of the scale of the armies that were fighting and the scale of number of deaths or wounded? I, I know there's obviously not going to be any accurate statistics, but we're, we're looking at more than a few hundred, I guess. Yeah, it's thousands. For right. generations afterwards, it's simply called the Great Battle. They often didn't even need to say Brunenburg. They just said the great battle and everybody said, yeah, I, I know, I know what you're talking about. You know, we're talking about probably on the order of, you know, my best guess is around 8,000 men on a side, which is extraordinarily large for the period. It is a size and a level of destruction that shocked people who were not shocked by violence. You know, it really is on another level entirely. And how do we know when one side wins a battle like that? I mean, does the losing side just run away? So pretty typically how battles ended, and most battles in the Middle Ages, I should say, were, were very fast. We have this idea, I think, from Hollywood, again, we're to blame for so much on this side of the pond. <laughs> that, right, you're uh, forgiven, isn't it? <laughs> appreciate it. You know, we have this idea of battles being generally this long kind of affair, and they usually weren't. Um, they usually happened very fast. Um, the lines came together, and someone somewhere on one of the sides wavered and broke. And when that happens, and the formation begins to sort of crumble, it spreads like wildfire. Yeah. And it becomes a rout as everybody runs away. And so, by and large, people who die in these in a typical battle are getting it in the back as they're running away. At Brunenburg, among the things that's remarkable is that it doesn't work this way. This was such a near thing, so closely fought. They were so well matched that it lasted, we're told, from the start of the day, from the morning, until the sun set. And that is very not typical. And if you kind of extrapolate the amount of death there must have been, it had to be, you know, that much more horrifying. You know, as, as that poem says, never greater slaughter was there in England before this, uh, from which I take the title of, of my book. So, yeah, it was bad. So we, the Hollywood cliche of people picking over the battlefield, you know, as night starts to fall, you know, that probably may have happened. I mean, there would have been that sort of kind of darkness falls and it's that sort of twilighty feel, right? Yeah, I think it, I think it probably was. Yeah. yeah, it probably was at Brunenburg. So when the, when the Allied lines break, and we, we don't know why they break, all we know is that the shield wall is broken. They retreat, we're told, some distance, it was probably several miles, to their ships that had brought them. Uh, right. And then they flee on the ships. And there was probably a line of death from the battlefield itself, where it mostly would have been concentrated. But then there was probably a line of bodies all the way to the shore as these guys were run down on their flight, trying to get to those ships and trying to escape. Uh, yeah, because the idea of taking prisoners of war is simply uh, <laughs> really a very modern invention. <laughs> so, yeah, there wouldn't be you, much point here, really. Yeah, yeah there's. Yeah, it's yeah. not like, uh, you know, a few centuries later, you're going to have 
the idea of, of ransoms, you know, at, at Agincourt, yeah, okay. Crecy, things like that. So dumb question, dumb question. Was Athelstan there? Athelstan's there. Athelstan's yeah. there by all accounts and by the sort of standards of the time. He was engaged in the fighting. He would be quite a sight at the end of all this. And it would have been a known thing. You would have seen where he was. It wouldn't have been been in hiding or something. Right. There would have been standards around him. It would have been very clear, like, that's the guy right there. And the same on the other side. You would have known, there's King Constantine of Scotland. You know, there's King Owain of the Strathclyde Britons. There's King Anlaf of the, of the Vikings from Ireland. And all their various, you know, sort of sub-kings and earls and all that, that are there. Now, oh, yeah. so I know that, as you say, that, you know, the aftermath is drawn out over months and years. But what is the effectively the aftermath of the battle? What's England the survives. England survives. You know, when you have an existential threat and you survive, it's, that's doing well. And that certainly is the case here. You know, if this goes the other way, probably we are facing a kind of situation which the English get rolled back to something like Alfred in the Swamp, potentially, if not worse, because this allied force would have only strengthened Got it. and would have been an absolutely very different sort of world. I mean, are, are you and I speaking English at this point? You know, exactly. Probably exactly. Not. <laughs> so those are the consequences. So that's, that's it, isn't it? I mean, in the sense, it's, it is a bit like the Battle of Britain in the sense that it's a battle, the British stroke, English. It's for national survival. If you lose it, Yes. You know, that's it. It's not like you're trying to. And I remember researching the aftermath or the I researched the memorialization of the Battle of Britain and, and about our changing perceptions of the Battle of Britain since from 1940 onwards and how more and more mm. memorials have been built in late, more recent years. But at the time, it was felt very much it wasn't something to memorialize. We simply just kind of didn't lose it. <laughs> that was all there was to it. That was yeah. that that was what was felt at the time in the cabinet at the highest levels. You, you weren't going to kind of memorialize a battle that we just didn't lose. You know, we didn't go out to conquer anything. We just saved ourselves from being invaded. And presumably there was an element of that to, to Brunenberg. I, I think that's exactly right. And the, and the correspondence is dead on. Yeah. And that's part of the reason why, you know, that perhaps we don't think of this in the same way as as the Battle of Hastings in 1066, sure. right, where you have this change at the top. The king is killed, King Harold is killed, and now it's William, and then the court systems get changed and everything, like the language changes. You can see those things here. Yeah, it's, it's survival, right? None of that later stuff happens if Athelstan doesn't win at Brunnenberg. Exactly. None of it will happen. And to cut a 1,084 years story short, um, England is saved and goes on to do all the stuff that England and Britain ends up doing. There we go. That, that's a thousand years quickly uh, summed up. But what I, what I want to know, what I want right to know on. next is as we, as, we, as we get a little bit nearer the end now, Michael, is, is I want to know where it is. Because you, in this book, you, you, you reveal with a very high degree of certainty, I think it's fair, but I think you are cautious. You don't say 100%, but you say very, you know, the high degree of certainty that you think that Brunenberg is somewhere specific. And can you tell us where that is? Yeah, it's in the mid-Wirral. I'm not the first person to say this, that this is something that goes right. back for quite some time, that people have thought it was there. We simply have a lot more evidence to bring to bear. So about 10 years ago, I was part of a team that put out a book called The Battle of Brunenberg Casebook, which led to all, the, all this wonderful, helpful mail, as you mentioned at the start of the podcast. Oh, well, I want to ask you about that. But yeah, but so evidence yeah. for the Wirral is what? I mean, bits and pieces. The evidence for the Wirral is that this is one of the only places where there is a Brunenberg. So the modern town of Bromborough, if you were to right. go back to where that word comes from, it comes from the old English word Brunenberg. 
So that's, you know, pretty good. Good clue. Yeah, good clue. Good clue. And when you start looking around the landscape, there are other place names that connect up and look right. Because when you had all these armies coming together at Brunnenburg, one group calls it Brunnenburg. Another group calls it something different. Another group calls it something different. So this multiplicity of names, actually, they kind of all fit into place on the mid-wheel, which is really cool. It also fits in with what we get from the, the sources as far as the distance to the sea, you know, how they would have gotten there. Is their harbor big enough for all these ships? We're told it's 615 ships that bring this allied force. That's a lot of ships. You can't just park that like on any old river or something. You've got to have a place. Okay, so they'd be on the Mersey, would they? They'd actually be on, it's no longer there, Wallasey Pool. So on the tip Quite. of the Wirral, okay. um, there was a, a large inland you know, lake. It's a, stre- it's a stretch of the Mersey that comes in. And it's big and big enough, and it's in the perfect spot. DNA has shown us that there was a long-standing contingent of, of Scandinavian Norse uh, peoples living there. So this kind of would have been uh, sort of home turf for this alliance to come ashore. So everything fits, you know, geographically, you know, looking at sort of uh, landscape archaeology. Uh, it works linguistically. Linguistically and landscape archaeology, but also any specific little finds that give us some clues as well? Yeah, so people have begun looking where we kind of, you know, put the X on the map, as it were, have been looking at it. Uh, a, a local group called We're All Archaeology. And, you know, of their own volition, their own funding, they've been looking there. And they've started finding, I'll say, a great many artifacts. We're not going to get a smoking gun, right? Because there was no gunpowder. <laughs> okay. But bent arrowheads work, and we're finding those. And we just, I mean, just uh, last week, I think it was, they found a dirham, uh, which is a coin from Baghdad, an 8th century coin. That's the kind of thing that Vikings like to put in their hordes. It's the kind of thing they like to carry. They used this coinage because of the silver content was so high in it. Found one of those, you know, more or less on the side of where we think the battle happened. So a lot of this is still in the early stages. You know, these kind of groups, they need funding. They need kind of partnerships. Right. So we need to give a big shout out to Wirral Archaeology then, don't we? I mean, oh, they're, they're doing God, some great these work. guys, they, they are doing great work. Uh, I am okay. so impressed with these folks. Okay. I want them to get all the support they can get. And then we may want to give a big shout out to Wirral Archaeology, but I know you have some detractors. So can you tell me a little bit about the level of, <laughs> of animus that your theory or I know you say it's it's not exclusively your theory, but you're proposing this is, is attractive. <laughs> well, so it turns out that lost things are never really lost. So a great many people and I had no idea. Brunenburg is in their back garden. And oh. When I, yeah, when I come along and I say, no, I I think it was over here. A lot of folks don't take very kindly to that. And it's slowed down a little bit. It'll probably go back up with the release of this new book. But yeah, I pretty regularly get kind of hate mail. You know, how dare you say it wasn't in my back garden? And how dare you specifically as an American? This isn't your country. Get off my lawn kind of thing. Damn Yank coming uh, over here, taking our battles away from somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. I I mean, how serious is this hate mail? I mean, is it kind of... Uh, I mean, some of it, you know, some of it threatens violence, right? But I mean, you know, this is uh, sad, sad to say. It's 2021. Oh, Michael, you're, you're, you're actually having violence threatened at you against the location yeah. of a battle that took place 1,084 years ago. <laughs> I'm like, neither of us has a dog in this fight, but okay. Right. But, you know, I mean, this is, it's 2021. I mean, you know, social media, everybody's threatening everybody. Uh, right. Sad to say. Okay. But, 
nothing nothing that I'm like you know looking over my shoulder or anything. I, I, yeah, but, in case, uh, yeah, someone it is fascinating. You know? I mean, I yeah, I think it's extraordinary. But but then again, I know it sounds a little bit silly, but in some ways, great that people are taking this seriously. And Brunenberg does oh, I, matter. That's the point. It, does, it matter. does matter. I think yeah. it's marvelous. I mean, it's. Uh, I mean, I'm not encouraging people to send me hate mail, but <laughs> okay. yeah. but as as you say, it it speaks to a level of engagement with with the past that as a historian i think is absolutely essential this is something that is important to understand who we are where we came from however we define we i i think of it just as you know humanity and that's something we should share in common and if people take it that seriously i mean i think that's a touch too seriously but you know good for you for being interested in the past like that's that's great you know you're wrong because i think it's in the middle we're all but you know that's okay we can we can still have a beer, you know. Oh, well, Michael, I, I hope that we have a beer for real one day. It's been a real pleasure talking to you today. I, I, <laughs> thank, I thank you, you so, so much. much indeed. It's It's been fantastic. Thank you. Now, that is it for today. And I really hope that you've enjoyed it. And I really hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Please don't threaten Michael with any <laughs> form of violence. But what you should do is open your wallets and go and buy his book, Never Greater Slaughter. That's published by Osprey. And that's a fantastic read. And it will tell you all about this battle that you now know just a little bit about, but you're going to learn a lot more about it if you read his book so please do but anyway thank you so much and once more if you've enjoyed this podcast please do subscribe to it and leave us a review on either apple Podcasts, google or spotify you can also catch up with us on social media at mail plus and you can catch up with me at guy walters on twitter and in the meantime many thanks for listening and until the next episode goodbye goodbye